Our first reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. And you can find it on page 72. There's a couple of words near the end. Massa means testing. And Meribah means quarreling. They're unfamiliar to us, but would have been familiar to the people who first read this. So, chapter 17, verses 1 to 7. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? And Moses cries out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massah and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel reading is taken from St. John, chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. It's to be found on page 1006, 1006. Jesus clears the temple courts. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. 
they replied. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to take it, uh, raise it in three days. But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. I'd like to pray before we start. O God, our Father, your word is so full of wonderful truths and promises. May what I say be faithful to your word and help us through your Holy Spirit to receive it and believe it. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> when things go wrong or bad things happen to people, like the re recent floods in our country and the virus, how often we hear the comment, where is God in all of this? We might even have thought it ourselves. And that is what today's Old Testament reading is all about. Verse 17. God's people asked the question, is the Lord among us or not? It comes from a story which many of us are very, very familiar with. The account of the Israelites' exodus from Egypt and their journey to the promised land. The Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for a very long time. Most of them would have been born there. Life had been hard and Pharaoh had been very cruel to them, not caring whether they lived or died. Their life was cheap to him. Now they were free of his tyranny. But the journey to the promised land would not be an easy or a quick one and in which they would encounter many obstacles, of which today's reading is an example. The first obstacle began right at the very beginning, when they were trapped with the pursuing Egyptian army behind and the Red Sea in front. The people complained, but Moses told them not to be afraid, because God would protect them, which is what God did. He instructed Moses to stretch out his rod over the sea and before their very eyes, it parted. And it would have taken them a long time to cross over because they were a vast nation of men, women and children, to say nothing of all the animals they had. And by the time they reached the other side, the Egyptians also were crossing. But when the last Israelite, an animal, safe. On the other side, God told Moses to stretch out his hand over the seabed and the waters came rushing back and the Egyptians were drowned. Such an experience would surely fill them with confidence for the journey ahead. Their main need on the journey would be for food and water and this was the source of most of their obstacles. However, every morning, 
God provided them with food, which they found on the ground when they woke. 900 tons of it, called manna. But the people were used to eating meat in Egypt. And where in the middle of a desert would they find sufficient meat to feed all of them? So God sent a flock of quails, so many that they lay just over four feet deep on the ground. The people ate quails until they were sick of them, but God had provided them with food. The next obstacle was their need to find water, no mean feat in a desert. The first oasis they came to had water, but it was undrinkable until through another miracle, God made it fit for use. The next place they arrived at had water, sufficient to provide for their need of two million gallons a day for them and their animals. Then we come to today's reading. First thing we notice in verse one is that God moved them on by stages. And the reason for that was so that they could have some time to refresh themselves, to rest before they moved on. And they couldn't possibly, in any case, carry the amount of water they needed for themselves and for all their animals. God is a God of detail, covering all the nitty-gritty practical details of everyday life. Water was a recurring need at each stage of their journey. Not easy, as I've already said, in a desert or a wilderness to find. But right from the very beginning of their journey, God had planned every detail and catered for all of their needs. And yet, every single time they encountered a problem, they turned on Moses and blamed him. But it wasn't Moses who had freed them from Egypt. And it wasn't Moses, well, it was in a way, but he, under God's direction, had led them into the, the desert. And it wasn't him who had certainly performed any of the miracles. He was merely God's servant. And Moses saw that in their complaining and dissatisfaction, it was really against God, not really against him. As we read the account of their journey, there is a recurring theme. They ran into a problem, and immediately they blamed God. Never once asking for his help, but Moses did. They failed to remember that God had proved himself to them many times over as a caring, loving God. God had always responded to their complaints and lack of faith with grace and love. So they had no cause to fear, but rather to have faith. Their motto should have been faith, not fear. However, they never seemed to learn that God was with them and that he would provide for them. They never learned to trust God. They never learned the lesson of faith. Instead, their cry was, is God among us or not? In other words, where is God in all of this? 
And as I was preparing this, I thought, this story has lots of resemblances to our Christian life. The Israelites' journey from a life of slavery, bondage, into a life of freedom. And it began at the Passover. In order to escape the plague of death, each family had to kill a perfect year-old male lamb. If any family was too small to do this, then they were to share with a neighbour. They were to use the blood of the lamb to paint a mark on the lintel and doorposts of their houses. The meat they could eat in preparation for their journey. Any house that didn't follow these instructions experienced death. Only those houses whose doorposts were painted with the blood of the lamb escaped. In the New Testament, many times, especially in the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the Lamb of God. And this has got nothing to do with his character, but all to do with the reason for his life here on earth. Like the perfect lambs that were slaughtered at the Passover, whose blood painted on the doorposts saved the people inside the houses, so the blood of Jesus, shed at the crucifixion, saves us from spiritual death. Because as we read in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Also in Romans 3.23 we read, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Even the vicar, I'm afraid. <laughs> in other words, we all come short of God's standards. But last week, Diana reminded us of the good news of the gospel found in John 3:16 and 17. For God so loved the world, and she challenged us, didn't she, to put our name there instead of the world, that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, that is, spiritually die, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And 1 Peter 3.9 tells us that God is patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but that everyone should turn to him. That is God's plan for us, but he doesn't force his plan on us. The decision is ours, just as the Israelites could choose whether or not to paint the doorposts and lintels of their house with the blood of the lamb. But just like the Israelites, when disasters occur in the world or in our own lives, are we tempted to say, or at least think, where is God in all of this? Doesn't he care? Like the Israelites, we are so focused on the problem that we forget how God has been with us and helped us in the past. We live in a sinful and wicked world. And Jesus warned his followers that there would be problems, there would be hardships. He never promised to shield us from them. 
for what he did promise in Matthew 28, verse 20, was, I am with you all the days and on every occasion to the very close of the age. One of my favorite passages is in Isaiah 43, when God says, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you, that is, saved from spiritual death. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through fire, you will not be burned. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. You are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. In other words, whatever the troubles we go through, when we might feel that we are drowning under them or being consumed by them, God says, I will be standing there with you and we will survive. I mentioned earlier about the devastation that the floods have brought in our country. And one vicar living in one of the devastated areas was interviewed on Songs of Praise. She was standing in what looked like a church hall, surrounded by table after table of all kinds of goods that people had donated for those whose homes had been flooded. She said, people ask me, where is God? And she turned around and she pointed to the room and said, this is where he is, in the kindness and generosity of people. And I would like to share with you something which happened to our family. We were expecting my son to arrive from London. And by 11 o'clock that night, when he hadn't turned up, my husband said, I know something's happened to him. And after making several phone calls, we discovered that he was in the Royal London Hospital. And we were told we were to get up there as far as fast as we could. And a friend at midnight got up out of bed to drive us there. And she stayed until six o'clock in the morning when she drove my husband home so that he could go to his dialysis in Canterbury and then she went to work. I was left on my own, but not for long because Diana drove up to be with me. My son was in intensive care and we were told that if he survived 48 hours, then he might make it. A policeman turned up to tell us that if he died, they would have to make a far more thorough investigation as to how the accident had happened. Then he said to us, I was the officer who attended the scene, and I am a Christian. And as he lay there on the ground, I prayed for your son. We also discovered that traveling two cars behind Matthew was a young doctor having done a day's work, was now going home. He and a lorry driver worked on Matthew until the air ambulance arrived. And I'm told that the care that is given in that first hour, they call it the golden hour, 
for a serious accident is very, very crucial. We knew nothing of Matthew's fight for life, but there was someone praying for him and someone giving him medical attention before the trauma team arrived. We weren't there, but God was through those three people. And it didn't end there. God provided for our needs also in the most miraculous and practical ways to say nothing of the support we had from this church and the wave of prayer that supported us from every single church we'd ever been in. Even from the lady in the sandwich shop near the hospital, who seeing our distress said she and her church would pray for Matthew. Bad things happen, but if we look carefully, we can see God's presence in the kindness and support of those God sends to help us. Like the Israelites, our motto should be faith, not fear, especially at this particular time. I want to end by reading that lovely promise God makes us in Jeremiah chapter 29. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. And I pray this morning that every single one of us here know that plan that God has for each of our lives. And if you don't, please speak to someone before you leave this morning. Amen.